Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 25. One. Falling. Not the wind whipping through your hair falling, but the stomach precedes you by about 50 feet falling. The feeling of being completely out of control and knowing that when the thrill stops, there's going to be nothing but pain. Sal had stopped trying to wrest control of her body from the hand. She mentally let go, not wanting to see what it was doing to Team 3's library with her body. She didn't want to feel the pains, little burns and cuts, but enough that the hand's spells inflicted on her. She didn't want to see the looks on Grace's, Liam's, Asante's, and Menchu's faces. Once she let go, she fell into the maelstrom of the hand. As a child, she had visited Niagara Falls with her family, and she remembered being disappointed. She had wanted to see a waterfall, but all she saw was what looked like a big cliff and then a lot of mist. She wished she could have seen through the mist to the waterfall, never mind the fact that the waterfall and the mist were the same. Now she felt as though she would be able to see the hand, understand him, if only the chaos of his power wasn't making it impossible to concentrate. She glimpsed a ruined plain, cracked and smoking, with countless demons of all sizes standing still, waiting. Another vision buffeted her, and she saw herself startled, but grim and determined. Perry's view, she realized. Her face looking into the mirror, slack and lifeless except for the eyes. And then her kitchen, and her oven. Shit, the oven. It wasn't broken at all. The sudden stop after the hand's rampage was painful. It was even more painful to open her eyes and look at her apartment. Sal wanted to ask how they got there, but she didn't have to. They stood in her kitchen, the hand and Sal, and her oven door gaped open with light streaming out of it. Close the oven, you're wasting energy, she admonished mentally. She wanted to laugh at the absurdity. The laugh didn't make it all the way to her mouth. Welcome back. I thought you had maybe checked out for good, the hand said using her mouth. You missed the fun. Missed, funny word. 
Sal pushed momentarily at the barrier the hand had raised between her and her actual motor function, and it didn't give. So you have what you wanted. What are we gonna do now? We? Her voice sounded odd to her ears. You make it sound like we're partners in crime, or that I want you along. You need a body, so perhaps wanting and needing are the same thing. Was it time to devolve into 1970s soft rock references? Probably not. And the whole of the Vatican just saw me blow shit up and attack my friends and steal from the library. I think we broke about five commandments and committed five deadly sins right there. They will always suspect me now. She felt sick, but the sensation didn't make it to her stomach. The hand apparently controlled involuntary muscles as well. No one left to play with, said the hand rummaging through her dresser. You always wear the most boring things. Why can't you look more interesting? You have the Codex Umbra, you have control of a cop's body, and the first thing you're gonna do is play dress up? You're wasting one of your wishes, man. The hand actually laughed. No, I'm not playing dress up. Just looking for your spare weapons. You hide them like squirrels hide acorns. Her hand closed around a small gun. She tossed it onto the bed. But someone who understands fashion might be good to talk to now that you mention it. I hadn't thought of her. Yes. It removed her cell phone from her pocket and dialed it. Cell phone service has been crappy in my apartment, Sal said helpfully. No, I've been blocking your reception, said the hand. Now hush, I'm on the phone. Sal realized with horror that the hand had started to take on her way of speaking. This would be bad if they encountered Team 3 again. Her only saving grace was that the hand was very obviously not Sal, behavior-wise. What if it started acting like her? She held her mental breath and waited as the hand spoke into the phone. Two. If she had hoped to eavesdrop on a conversation between two demons, she was out of luck. The hand spoke guttural, harsh syllables Sal would have been incapable of making on her own. The voice on the phone was similar, crude and cruel. She focused on her body briefly, feeling the burns on her hands, the cuts on her arms, the scrape on her leg. She held on to these little pains as tenuous connections to something she no longer owned. The hand ended the call. You wanted to find out what I'm up to? Come and see, it said as it stashed the codex umbra under her arm as if it were nothing more than a textbook, like I have a choice. Sal was grateful that they didn't travel by oven again. She suspected it was that moment that she had lost control when everything around her had gone from using magic to being used by magic. She hadn't considered what the view would be like while teleporting. She had never had reason to wonder. But this time, the hand left her apartment and walked confidently out into Rome. We're going to see an old friend, the hand told her. A number of friends, in truth. You going to kill these demons, too? Not all of them, the hand said with mock hurt in her voice. You'll like Vogue. She lives at the offices of a leading Italian shoe designer. Let me guess, a demon of vice, pride? We all own each of the sins to one degree or another. But sometimes one sin can dominate the others, yes. We don't fall into categories, though. No one around to classify you into the right kingdom, I suppose. Are you vegetable, mineral, or plant? The hand didn't answer. Sal concentrated on the feel of her feet on the sidewalk and the sense of the city in summer. You want to tell me why we aren't taking your magic oven teleporter? Again, no answer. 
They continued on toward the corporate offices of Monroe, the premier Italian shoe designer. Liam watched the people, robed and not robed, scurry about with their accusations and their questions. He didn't care. Other, better people were there for damage control. Grace rushed around busily, cleaning up books under Asante's direction. There were the damaged books and the undamaged books stacked near their former shelves. The dangerous books she kept next to her desk. The archivist looked disheveled and defeated. A thin cut on her cheek bled freely and she ignored it. Manchu was speaking to some officials, low and quick, trying to undercut their objections, calm their obvious rage. They swept from what was left of the library with promises to return. Liam noticed and dismissed all of this. He was helping clear a space for the temporary ladder to get people in and out of the archives now that the stairs had been blown up. He refused to touch anything associated directly with the library. As he cleared more rubble, he thought about Bron. Liam had trusted him. He had introduced Liam to the group that eventually plugged him into the vast expanse. Jenna, with the deep brown hair and dimple on one cheek. Short, curly-haired, round face. Not the kind of person you'd think was into dark magic. But she'd tricked him and fucked him, and the trap sprang shut, metaphorically and physically. He had trusted Asante until he had seen her eyes light up at each new magical abomination. Grace had been odd, but seemed trustworthy, despite keeping her situation from him for so long. And Sal. How long had she hidden a demon inside her? What influence did it have on their relationship, good or bad? He shuddered, remembering the times they had been intimate. Sal, Liam, and whatever was inside her. Manchu could still be trusted. Liam, you were closest to her. How could you not see this? Manchu said from across the room. Liam looked up so sharply that his neck cracked. He winced and rubbed it. That's where we are then, Blame. Usually you circle the wagons before you start whipping the children. Easy, Liam, Grace said, her voice dangerous. And you're the one who just spent an entire day doing God knows what with her, Liam said, waving his hand at Grace. How come you didn't see anything? You're supposed to be all attuned to the shit. He turned to Asante. And you're special, this magic and bad because it's useful orb. How come that didn't catch anything, huh? Liam, Manchu said. No, don't do that. Don't point your self-righteous finger at me. If I'm to blame, we're all to blame. And while we're blaming, has anyone noticed that Sal has the Codex Umbra? It's not Sal, Grace said, low and stubborn. She's a victim here, and we have to help her. Liam stared at Grace. Are you serious? Manchu gave him a level look. Sal is in trouble. She's possessed. Sal is dead, Liam said. Demonator took over her body. Goodbye, stubborn as nails cop from New York. Shut up, Liam, Grace said, carrying a stack of singed books to where Asante directed her. We're going after her. A lot of you are crazy. How many people have we actually saved who have been full on possessed like that? I'll even let you count dear comatose Perry. That's one. Anyone else got another? Manchu's tenuous calm broke. Should I have left you then? A boy plugged into a server? A tool for a digital cult? I could have let you die. I could have left Grace packed in a crate in Guatemala. Should I have? Sal is a member of our team. She is in trouble. Therefore, we help. She would do the same for you. Liam pressed his lips together. He picked up a book at random. The pages still smoldered. He dropped the book with a wince. We're going after her, Menchu said. Are there any other objections? 
Asante and Grace were silent. Good, he said. He put another book on a scorched pile. I have more faith in our ability to separate Sal from the demon than I have in our ability to protect her from them right now, Asante said. She jabbed her finger at the now stable ladder by which the men had departed. Manchu frowned. We're going to have to stay a few steps ahead of Team One. We don't need another gaping hole to explain. I wasn't thinking of one, Asante said. Even Liam looked up at the seriousness of her voice. You know what Team Two will do if they find her. Manchu set his jaw. So we'll find her before they do. Liam, Grace, you're our search party, but I need to have a word with Liam first. Outside of that, I'll run political interference here. Asante, see if you can get a fix on Sal with the orb. Asante glanced at the precious artifact on her desk. It had a scorch mark on the right side and looked battered. She rubbed a sleeve across its smooth surface. I'll do my best. Okay, father, what's the big- Ow! Manchu grabbed Liam's ear and dragged him down the hall outside the archives. Outrage bubbled up in Liam at the treatment, and he almost punched Manchu, but decided against it. The priest pulled him toward a door that said manutenzione. Liam had always assumed it was a broom closet. Inside was an asymmetrical architectural afterthought, about a meter and a half wide. It was about the size of a broom closet, but held no cleaning materials. Instead, it was furnished with a wooden bench, a crucifix on the wall, and a stained glass window high up. As they were still underground, the melancholy light that came through must have come from a recessed light bulb. Manchu pushed Liam through the door, and he stumbled, coming to sit painfully on the bench under the crucifix. Manchu loomed above him, the blue light on his face giving him a morose aura, but his face was anything but morose. What the hell is wrong with you? He snarled. Liam blinked at him. Father Manchu seldom swore. Me? I'm the only one with sense around here. I've lost team members before. It's a tragedy, but it's part of the job. Suddenly Sal gets possessed, and you're willing to drop everything to save her? Sal is not gone. I have faith. Manchu's jaw was clenched. Why? Liam asked, utterly baffled. Because she has to be all right, Manchu said, his face finally falling. He slumped and then sat on the bench beside Liam. He rubbed his face with his hands. This one feels different. I've done this long enough to know at least that much. Either way, the hand has the codex, and we have to get it back. If we can save Sal in the process, is that so bad? Liam gritted his teeth. Even if we save her, we can never trust her again. That's something you'll have to work out yourself, Menchu said, standing. But don't presume to speak for the rest of the team. You'll deal with your own demons, Liam. I'm tired of holding your hand. Now, go do your damn job. He left the room, and Liam sat stunned in the weak blue light. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what 
she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Three. Sal always had a sense that fashion companies were probably inherently evil, but she had not expected the walls of this corporate office to begin bleeding as soon as the hand entered the room. Vogue he said, and Sal could feel her face smiling. The blood coalesced into a shape. It wasn't a woman's shape, it was more like a floating being of fire and blood, like a pufferfish, but without the ridiculous bulging eyes. The spines around it reached out and licked at her, and she winced inwardly at the pain that shot up her arms as the demon investigated her and the hand. You're back, she said. I like this form. I am, the hand said, and we're finally ready to open a door. The shape laughed. The spines contracted a bit as she chuckled. You've been saying that for centuries. Besides you devouring this very fine body, I don't see what's different. Something welled up inside Sal, and she realized it was gleeful anticipation on the hand's part. She groaned inwardly. So you won't help me, it said. Sal could tell the demon was hoping Vogue would say no. No. The hand revealed the Codex Umbra, and Vogue began to scream. Sal had read a fantasy book once, Unlikely Destiny, in which a peasant became a field medic during a bloody magician's war. He feared the sight of blood, trembled when sewing up a cut, felt sick, amputating a limb, but the alternatives of actually going to war and fighting were much worse than learning this skill on the fly. It was a terrible book, but Sal remembered it because she had felt for that one cowardly character in the role he had to take, whether he liked it or not. And so she paid attention as the hand tortured and dismantled Vogue with a mixture of magic and brute force. Her hands blistered and bled as it tore at the being of blood and fire, breaking her to its will, and then, once she submitted to it, tearing off her spines one by one. As he did so, the walls bled more, pooling on the floor, but not soaking into the carpet. The demon stuff held together like a gelatin mold, quivering slightly. There was a strange sense of expectancy to the gore. That was fun, the hand said when it was done. Who's next? Between Sal's cell phone, reading passages from the Codex Umbra that made her throat bleed, 
and apparently a sort of demonic rumor network, the hand had soon filled the office's front foyer, which had grown somehow to accommodate the newcomers with demons of all kinds. Some looked fearful. Some looked as if they were there against their will. Others looked like Christmas had come after their wealthy mean grandfather had died. More to come, the hand said, pacing back and forth as the demons from Rome answered his call. He picked two as his deputies, a purple pig-headed demon with snakes for fingers that Sal mentally called, oh Christ, what is that? And a huge, bulky, chalk-white creature that Sal was strangely relieved to see looked like a normal, everyday, ugly demon. It left a white residue on anything it touched, including the desk where the Codex Umbra lay open. Chalky and, oh Christ, what is that? stood on either side of the desk, protecting the codex. Some of the demons, those that had answered the call of the book itself, tried to get closer, but the hand's command to stay back kept them obedient. Some still got too close for the hand's liking, and they died messily. Still, many more remained. He's building an army, Sal thought. Those he's not killing, anyway. Unsurprisingly, the hand dismantled the ones who were there against their will. The demons may not have wanted to be there, but they obeyed the codex and they submitted to the hand even while they screamed as it tore them apart. The quivering piles of demon stuff grew. You're taking them apart like Lego toys, but what are you gonna do with the leftovers? It had been a while since she had talked directly to the hand and she wondered if it would reply to her. She didn't have to wait long. You'll see. The hand pulled two more demons forward, relatively human shaped, and gave them instructions. Their language sounded like grunting and screaming. She tried to pay attention, but she could feel her sanity slipping. To learn that language would be to lose everything else, she figured, so she retreated inside. Her body had become a painful vehicle she recognized, but no longer remembered how to drive. She felt like a Roman noble in the time of Caesar, who found herself in a modern car instead of a chariot of her time. She relished the pain she felt, and tried small acts of disobedience as the hand continued its work. She succeeded in blinking once. To make sure it wasn't a chance, she tried to curl the toes of her left foot. The toes obeyed. Sal thought how wonderful it would be to have control of her body again. And then how it would feel to have control of her body again amidst a room full of demons. Waiting was safer. She retreated further and thought about Aaron's bright white light. The hands chanting continued and the walls kept bleeding. Asante stayed at her desk, cataloging the damage and watching the orb. It lurked silent and sullen by her hand, lurking and sullen, the pathetic fallacy at play, her own imagination investing the orb with consciousness. Probably, though considering the volatile nature of most artifacts, it wouldn't be out of the question for the orb to have emotions. Sometimes, like now, with a team member possessed without anyone's knowledge, she thought the orb picked and chose what to report. Nothing would surprise her anymore. Well, not quite nothing. She had, for example, been quite surprised when Sal turned out to be housing a demon. Sorrow warred with rage inside her, but she kept her face calm as she reviewed the wreckage of her life's work. No truly valuable, or as Manchu would have said, dangerous books seemed to have been seriously hurt, but in Asante's line of work, there was no such thing as an acceptable loss. Which brought her to the second list of missing books which contained only one entry so far, the Codex Umbra. Can we talk? Manchu asked in a low voice, pointing at a chair beside her desk that was piled with charred books. 
Asante nodded and rose to move the books herself. She had to make sure she knew where they all were, so she didn't allow anyone to touch them once they had been counted. She set the stack beside the chair and dusted some ash off the seat before offering it to Arturo. How is Liam? She asked. I am worried. I think he's becoming unhinged. He's deeply frightened, and he's diving into the grieving process too quickly, as if he's trying to get it over with, Manchu said. We don't have time for that, Asante said flatly. Normally, yes, but right now, Sal really needs help. Liam can't split our focus. She paused, looking around the library until she spotted Grace, still stacking books. Send Grace after him. Manchu followed her gaze. You think? Liam needs some sense knocked into him. Possibly literally, and I have to find Sal. Manchu checked his watch and grimaced. I have a meeting shortly. Team two wants a briefing. What are you going to tell them? Manchu sighed. The truth? Really? He nodded. The truth is we're on the case and doing our jobs. When we need them, we'll call them. Do you think that'll work? She asked. It's all I've got right now, he said. Two hours, 37 minutes, and 15 seconds after Sal had left the archives in a maelstrom of fire and chaos, Grace punched Liam in the face. She held back, of course. She didn't want to break anything. But she did punch harder than she usually did while sparring with him, so he went down hard. Why the fuck did you do that? He asked, lying on his back and cradling his cheek, rage twisting his face into a snarl. Because I knew I'd find you here. I knew you'd be coming down this corridor to sell her out. You're the pettiest man I know. Liam lay on the rich carpet of the corridor that led to the Team Two offices. The Vatican's labyrinth of halls and rooms usually managed to stay simple, with the flashier displays of wealth either where the public could see them or within deep vaults. But Team Two did not scrimp. The carpets were blue and gold and showed no sign of wear. Damask wallpaper covered the walls, also blue and gold. Grace found the display offensive. You're supposed to be working with me, Grace said. When she was taking care of the higher-ups and the other teams, do your job and we can take care of this mess. Liam stayed down, glaring at the ceiling, which was painted with intricate cherubs and lit with small chandeliers. Air has deluded us, the rest of them, he muttered. Grace strode forward and stood above him, one booted foot on each side of his head. Did you go to team two yet? Did you tell them what was going on? No, he said, sliding away from her boots and wincing. Grace stared at him and nodded once. Then let's go after Sal. She's gone. You don't know that. You weren't. Don't you get it, Grace? I don't know that I ever came back. His voice echoed in the empty hall. Grace was not a good person. She knew it because she let him lie there at her feet at war with himself for what felt like a long time before she held out her hand. Come on, let's do our job. He did not look at her until they hit the street. Menchu touched the crucifix around his neck and said a quick prayer for guidance. He promised to not bear false witness, but he gave no promise to say everything that he knew. The crucifix in his hand grew warm as he waited. Perhaps he should simply avoid this meeting. Hurry, he thought, just go after Sal. He paused and then turned around. Peter Usher, the Monsignor in charge of guiding Team Two, turned down the hallway with a smile, the kind that doesn't reach the eyes, on his face. Behind him trailed Monsignor Anjuli, Team Three's council representative, looking fretful. Manchu ground his teeth. 
He prayed for forgiveness and took his hand from his crucifix. Father, I'm glad to see you. I was about to let you know that cleanup will begin soon on the archives, but we have a lead on the demons that attacked us. We have to strike now. I will let you know the details when we return. Usher put up his hand, stopping Menchie with the gesture. We know what happened, Arturo, he said. Monsignor Anjuli described the breach. The archives have been compromised, as well as your team. As of right now, team two is taking over this investigation. Menchu nodded once. That's for the best, I think that's for the best, yes. Let me know if we can assist in any way, any way. Both Monsignors raised eyebrows at his stumbling words, and he cursed silently. Sorry, I'm rather overwhelmed, tired. I'll go tell my team they can stand down and wait for debriefing from team two, shall I? We have some points to discuss, Monsignor Usher said, gesturing to Anjuli. About the future of the teams, I'll send someone to get you after we work some things out. Good, good, Menchu said. You'll need to remove us on from the archives for now until we figure out what's going to happen with team three. Menchu swallowed the lump of rage in his throat. Understood. He leaned away from them, eager to leave. He didn't care about the existence of Team 3 at this point. He just wanted to get Liam, Grace, and Asante away from the Vatican. The inside of the shoe design office looked like an abattoir. So I wondered why no security alarms were going off, but if the hand had blocked her phone communications in her apartment, it wasn't too big a logistical leap to think that it could block cameras and alarms. If the human race lives through whatever is currently going down, there's gonna be a huge carpet cleaning bill. Quiet. The hand snapped. Sal's voice sounded strained. She was distracting it, which meant it needed its full attention for the task at hand. The hand had slaughtered many of the visiting demons and dismantled them, starting with Vogue. It then laid the bits of smoking flesh on the floor, taking care to put each in the right spot, making itself a body. Chalky and, oh Christ, what is that? Were busy cutting various bones free from the dead demons and a few live ones and adhering them to the bleeding walls. They were building something that looked like an archway, long leg bones making the sides and cracked ribs forming the arch. The demons that were neither slaughtered yet nor working directly for the hand milled around, some of them hanging back in fear, some of them eagerly watching. A few masochists were offering themselves to the hand to help it achieve its greatness. The hand snared one of these, a small six-legged cat-like demon with black spines instead of fur, and broke it in half. The spines cut Sal's hands, but she barely felt the pain anymore. The hand muttered some words, glancing at the codex as it chanted, and formed each side of the cat demon into horns it fixed to the forehead of the body on the floor. Oh, now that was unnecessary. You had to kill that cat thing just so you could have horns? What's next, kill someone else to make sure your dick is big enough? She wasn't sure why she was defending a demon, but the hand's actions still seemed pretty shitty. Quiet, the hand said again, louder this time, and the demons around them subsided. You don't like me in your head bugging you? You're really gonna complain about that after the last few months? You're nothing but a hypocrite. Sal was enjoying herself in a perverse way. Soon enough, the hand panted. I will be free of you. It took a breath. And then, ending you will be the first thing I do. The wall inside the bone arch began to shimmer and crack. The blood red light spilled into the room. The hand kept reading and the wall shattered, giving Sal a good look into the world beyond. It was a world she remembered having seen while glimpsing the hand's memories, and for a moment she was worried that the hand would take her there. 
No, it's an exit, and it's not for us. Demons teamed around the portal, waiting for it to stabilize so they could come through. The room pulsed with energy, and the demons inside roared and cheered and hissed. The hand positioned Sal's body between the portal and the piles of gory bits of slaughtered demons. The portal pulsed again, and Sal's body shook from the pressure of the magic around her. Light shot out from the opening and around Sal, then through her, to fall on the cobbled together body on the floor. The bits melted to form a more recognizable shape. It was going to be quite tall. Sal thought the hand was getting ambitious. It could have built a shorter body and killed fewer demons in the process, but then people who thought like that probably didn't tend to end up hosting demons. The body lying in the center of the foyer would be at least eight feet tall, with huge muscular thighs and shoulders, hands that ended in three claws, cloven feet, and horns that had previously been the six-legged cat thing. She could feel the strain the hand required to focus the magic into its new body. She looked at the huge, inert form and thought for the first time that perhaps getting the hand out of her head wasn't the best idea at this moment. I miss my team, she thought. Grace would have a field day in here. The body had formed almost completely. The new skin was brown and bumpy and tough. The flesh underneath looked hard as stone, and fangs grew from its gums. Her ears pricked as she heard a sound far off, beyond the screams of the demons and the pressure the magic had put on her senses. It was a sound like a door being kicked open. Soon, her own voice said, but she didn't know whether she or the hand said it. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. been told for so long that the bees were disappearing. But now, when I see them, well, each time is like a little gift. And do you remember the last time you saw bees? In the orchards, I think. It appears the areas of your brain that had suffered varying levels of atrophy have, in a sense, rebuilt themselves. And this happened very quickly overnight. Anything else I can get for you? actually here looking for someone. My brother Colin. He was in town about a week ago. Do you know where Cruxmont is? There is nothing in Cruxmont that anyone has ever wanted to find except for plum wine and fruit pies. You shouldn't have come here. Miss Chow, leave, just leave! Colin! Don't mind Cruxmont. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>